So today's reading is Luke 7, verse 36 to 50. Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman that she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus says. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among them, who is this, even, who, is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Please do keep your Bibles open as we're going to be uh, referring to the text throughout. But uh, before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Gospel of Luke. Thank you for this evangelist who took the time to talk to the eyewitnesses and present us with an orderly account so that we might be convinced that Jesus is Lord. Would you open our hearts to hear your word today? Amen. <clears throat> How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Words from probably the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, written in 1772 by John Newton. You may already know this, but Newton's life was not always preaching and hymn writing. For his younger years, Newton was a ship's captain and a slave trader, living a life of drunken debauchery, taking particular pride and delight in leading his fellow sailors as far as possible from the Lord. He even earned himself the nickname, The Great Blasphemer, for his utter rejection of Christ. But then one day at sea, deep in the most ferocious storm of his life, sails ripped to shreds, he had to be tied to the ship's wheel in order not to be blown overboard, the Great Blasphemer cried out to God and asked to be delivered. God indeed saved his life. And on that day, 21st of March, 1748, Newton knew that the rest of his life must be lived in service of Christ. 
Newton's outpouring of relief and gratitude when he realized that God had saved him, even him, who in his own words, the worst of all sinners, no doubt gave us that poignant line with which I began. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. In today's passage, I think we can make an error if we only read it in the the normal ways that we tend to read Scripture. That's not to say those ways are bad or wrong, but I think we might miss something. So we might, for example, read a passage like this and ask, what is the life application for me here? That's a good question. It's valuable, and it's always important to ask when we read the Bible. But if we only ask that, we might miss something. We might also read a passage like this and look for that teachable moment from Jesus, how he applies his insight and wisdom and how he communicates God's truths with the people around him. Once again, valuable to look for, and this story has a whopper of a teachable moment from Jesus. But even so, focusing on that, I think, means we can miss something. I've spent the last three weeks embedded in this scripture, thinking again and again, turning it over in my mind, and I have become fixated on one key truth, that as well as these things, I think that this story is one of the most beautiful love stories ever told. It's not romantic love, but it is deep, and it is intimate, and it is overwhelmingly beautiful. Let me explain. We, we aren't told much about this woman's background, except that she has lived a sinful life. Often that is interpreted as a, as a euphemism to mean that she was working as a prostitute, but it could also mean an, a number of other sins, any of which would have resulted in her being ostracized by her community. Public shame. Not welcome in synagogue not being invited to public events. Holy people keeping out of her way just in case she might somehow infect them with her sinfulness. Every eye in town staring at you anywhere you went. Comments as you walked by, just loud enough for you to hear. Just just think for a moment what that's like. To walk down... Winchester High Street and to have everyone part ways and look at you with disgust as you walk along. Shame. I wonder if you know that there is a very significant difference between shame and guilt. We often use the words somewhat interchangeably in our songs and in our writings. Uh, Lines like, my shame and guilt are washed away. We can sort of attach them to each other in our minds. But they're actually very different things. So guilt is about something you have done. Whereas shame is about who you are as a person in your core. So for example, guilt would say, I stole something. Shouldn't have done that. Whereas shame says, I'm a thief. Guilt can actually be helpful as long as it's, as long as it's accurate. It's the voice of conscience calling us to repentance. 
But shame is always bad, always destructive, always speaking against the truth of who we are in God. Shame says there is something wrong with me. The very opposite of God's message for humankind. And over time, shame permeates deeper and deeper and deeper. So I am a thief turns into I'll always be a thief. And I'm no more than a thief. And and public shame is even worse than that because it's not only your own internal voice of shame condemning you. Look at verse 39. Simon the Pharisee doesn't say Jesus would know all of the things that she's done. He says he would know what kind of woman she is, a sinner. Condemned by her mistakes. Her whole person defined by her actions, wrong as they may have been. And just as an aside, and I say this with all possible respect to biblical translators who have added those little subheadings in bold to help us navigate the stories, but could could we please all agree to stop calling this woman the sinful woman? Not only does it totally miss the point but actually we're joining in with piling on the shame by defining her by her past and by the mistakes that she's made. And actually her adoration of Jesus is one of the most beautiful moments in the gospel and and quite frankly she deserves better. So so maybe if we're discussing this in our home groups or or, or as we read later on, could, could we just agree between ourselves to call her the faithful woman or the anointing woman or the forgiven woman? Rant over. A number of scholars think that it's probable that this woman has encountered Jesus before. Her actions, while surprising and socially awkward, seem to be built upon some kind of context. In truth, we we won't know exactly what that context context is on this side of heaven, but if I may, I'd like to share what I imagine took place. So this story appears to be taking place in Capernaum, Uh, We're told at the beginning of chapter 7, that's in Capernaum, there doesn't appear to have been a change of scene. So this lady may well be from there, where Jesus spent a lot of his early ministry. And she's immediately recognized by Simon the Pharisee, the host of the party, which probably means that she is recognized across the whole town for her sinfulness. The whole town. So the weight of shame, bearing down on her mind, is probably unbearable and has been there for a long time. I imagine her as emotionally pretty numb, crushed internally by her own sense of shame. Beginning to believe the vile comments she hears in the street, accepting them as truth about herself believing that the good people's avoidance of her means that she's beyond hope for redemption. Believing that her rejection from the synagogue means that she's rejected by God as well. But then, Jesus arrives in town. Maybe she uh, received John's baptism of repentance and then she heard John testify that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Or maybe she was there at Jesus' sermon in Luke 6 
And she heard Jesus proclaim God's blessings for the poor and the broken. Or maybe she was in the crowd in Luke 5 where Jesus healed the paralyzed man and she hears Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe she's heard this or these things and she's just beginning to believe that forgiveness could be available for her too. Maybe for the first time in a long time, a little flicker of hope is glimmering in her heart. So maybe she just wants to say thank you to this itinerant preacher for giving her hope. So she, she sneaks into a dinner party with a gift for him, some fancy perfume that she had in her home, just to let him know that she's grateful for that glimmer. But just as she approaches him as he's reclining at the table and opens her mouth to say her carefully prepared thank you, he turns his head and looks at her. And in his eyes, she sees the full weight of God's love and acceptance and mercy and forgiveness, and it hits her like a ton of bricks. Suddenly, she's on the floor crying uncontrollably, sobbing. This isn't dignified weeping. This is ugly crying. Her feet, his feet are soaked with tears and snot and saliva as years and years and years of shame comes flooding out of her like a dam has burst. She comes to her senses for a split second and realizes how disgusting this must be for him. But she doesn't have a towel, so she lets down her hair and tries clumsily to clean his feet off, kissing them between wipes, still shaking from every sob releasing from her body. She can't leave his feet like this. Hair is not good at getting feet clean. The perfume. She grabs the jar and pours every drop over his feet. Hopefully that gesture will make her gratitude clear. She pulls away slightly and resumes her gentle cleansing, sobbing at his feet, vaguely aware of a conversation going on in the room. Eventually, she becomes aware that Jesus has now turned to speak to her. So she lifts her head to look at him and hears the words that signify the beginning of the rest of her life. Your sins are forgiven. The shame is gone. And now the guilt is gone too. All at the feet of Jesus. Simon the Pharisee, the host of the dinner, has watched the whole thing. And it just doesn't compute. He doesn't get it. I wonder if you've ever noticed that Luke has this beautiful little habit in his writing that where the Pharisees speak profound truths but don't realize they're doing so. Have you ever noticed that? I I think he was probably quite enjoying himself when he did that. So let me give you an example from uh, chapter 15. Don't worry, turn in there. It's just just up on screen. Um, Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're acting like Jesus' marketing department. They might as well put up a billboard on his behalf. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I imagine the people of society, the broken and forgotten people of society, overhearing the Pharisees grumble to themselves and say, what? There's someone up the street who welcomes me. 
who's prepared to eat with me. I'm off. Amazing, I'm going to see him. They sort of turn their back on the Pharisees and see their faces. Oh, you meant it as a bad thing. I don't care, I'm off to meet him. The Pharisees so often speak a profound truth, but fail to grasp the And it's the same with Simon the Pharisee here in our reading today. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus is a prophet. Tick. He would know that she is a sinner. Tick. But Simon still completely misses the point. His mind is so occupied with dictating other people's shame and trying to control their behavior that he can't see the bigger picture. So Jesus, knowing Simon's mind, turns to him and turns this into the mother of all teachable moments. A parable. One of the shortest Jesus tells, followed by a single question. Who loves more? Someone forgiven a little debt or someone forgiven an enormous debt? The the, the reason that Jesus' parable and question is such a stroke of genius is that it's so basic in its simplicity that even a four-year-old could answer it. But that means that Simon has got nowhere to hide. He's got no hand to play in response. There's no room for a clever, highly educated rabbinical, ah, but have you considered? It's too basic a question. Who loves more, Simon? So Simon gives the only answer available. The one forgiven more, of course. And here's here's the bit that is truly penetrating that we often miss because we jump to Jesus' comparison of the woman's behavior and of Simon's. But Jesus begins his response with, do you see this woman, Simon? Do you see this woman? Do you see her? Because obviously Simon hasn't seen her. He's seen her actions. He's seen her sin. He's seen her shame. But he hadn't seen a woman. He hadn't seen a precious daughter of God crippled under the weight of the shame that he had helped create. He just sees the shame. When we read this story, if you're anything like me, I, I guess we, we most frequently imagine ourselves from the woman's perspective receiving and accepting the forgiveness of Jesus and trying to give our gratitude. Maybe sometimes we imagine ourselves as a disciple watching it. Maybe even sometimes we imagine ourselves uh, in the position of Jesus, witnessing the woman pouring herself out. But I wonder if we are prepared to allow ourselves the discomfort of imagining ourselves from Simon the Pharisee's perspective and seeing what that highlights in our hearts. In those times where we are maybe getting a little bit self-righteous, are we positioned to hear Jesus' firm rebuke? Letting him challenge us by saying, do you see this person? Do you see? Not their sin, not their mistakes, not that which you dislike about them or that which annoys you, them. 
Do you see them? Who do you need to see? So, how do we do it? How do we go out of here, get up on Monday morning, and keep our heart like that of the woman, rather than like Simon? Because like it or not, unfortunately human nature is such that over time we are all tempted to drift into Simon territory. Where we forget that we are daily in need of grace for ourselves. We might think that we have it all together. We might even be tempted to think that we get to condemn other people that we see around us. So how do we avoid it? Well, I think it's really just a question of perspective. So a number of years ago, a famous art critic called Robert Cumming was looking at this painting in the National Gallery. It's by a Renaissance master called Filippino Lippi. It's called The Virgin and Child with Saints Jerome and Dominic. For many generations, scholars had been standing in front of this painting, confused by it. Lippi is a master. His use of color, perfect. His use of light, perfect. But this painting is, has often been written off by critics and scholars as being a bit second rate. And it's because the perspective seems wrong. Standing in front of it, in a gallery, looking at it, it doesn't feel quite right. The mountains look like they're about to topple forward. Mary's knees are a little bit too far forward. The trees are sort of leaning towards you in an awkward way. And St. Jerome on the left looks like he's going to almost fall out of the painting. And Cumming was looking at this as many, many generations of critics and scholars had before in the gallery face to face with it. And then had an epiphany. And he looked at his notes. The painting was commissioned to hang above an altar in a chapel. And Lippi wondered if maybe the problem was not with the painting, but with himself. So in an incredibly self-conscious moment, Lippi, in the middle of the National Gallery, got onto his knees and looked again at the painting and suddenly saw that he was looking at a painting that had fallen into perfect proportion. The problem was not with the painting, it was that Lippi was standing. No, sorry, Cumming was standing. You see, it was never created to be assessed in a gallery. The whole thing only works from a posture of prayerful humility. So why was the highly educated, religiously righteous Simon the Pharisee standing proudly upright, unable to see the beauty of the forgiveness that Jesus offered, where the woman on her knee. Sometimes it's just a question of perspective. In a moment, we're going to sing the song that John Newton wrote. And I want to invite you to take a position of humility, to approach Jesus just as the woman did. You may wish to kneel, or you may simply wish to kneel within your heart. But either way, 
I invite you to follow the woman's example and approach our beautiful saviour with humility and gratitude for the forgiveness that he offers. Amen.